Well, hey, Chris. Hello, Johnners. How's everything going? It's going good. Are you ready to talk about the penultimate episode of the third season of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul? I am moderately ready. Well, it sounds like you're ready to start an episode of Saul Searching. Let's do it. I've been trying to think of some way to uh, actually say the name of the show. <laughs> yeah, that was a good way. Yeah. Very natural. So, episode nine, Fall, this episode was written by Gordon Smith, who was originally a writer's assistant on the show and kind of got bumped up to writer. And this episode was also directed by Minky Spiro, who is a new director to the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul family of shows. I looked on her IMDb, and it seems like she has directed a lot of television, specifically some Downton Abbey prior to this. Minky, didn't you used to have a stuffed monkey named Minky? No, it wasn't me who had the stuffed monkey who uh, named Minky. It was our it was our mutual friend John Evans. Okay, I thought maybe he was both of y'all's. Well, Minky was sort of like a friend to all, but he was a stuffed animal that belonged to John Evans. Okay, you think Minky listens? Minky, I'm certain listens. <laughs> he writes in all the time. John Evans, I don't know about. Okay, any address he has, Chris, he just writes like send more bananas. You know, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, Minky's got no boundaries. Kind of like the hero of uh, Better Call Saul. He's yeah. got issues with boundaries and exploiting friendships, but we'll get to that in due time. Just in general terms, what did you think of Fall, an episode that felt like it was poised to really be the point where a lot of these plots kind of reached a crescendo or or just exploded? And I don't think it quite happened that way, but that's not to say we didn't get quite a few very eventful things in this episode. How did it strike you? Right. No, it did strike me as just getting closer to those crescendos for the most part of uh, setting up even more tightly, like, oh, now it's even closer to to uh, really big things that can happen for the most part. But uh, it's all over the map. But a lot happened. A lot happened. Well, I guess let's get started with what I would say is the least eventful storyline of the episode, and that would be Mike's storyline. I just took this scene at the beginning of this episode at Madrigal to be a furthering of this sense that Mike is locked into the fate that we know. You know, the end of yeah. last week, he was shaking hands with Gus. Well, at the beginning of this week, he's signing a contract. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like you were seeing anything new with Mike this week? Uh, well, I thought that was cool. I thought that, um, yeah, if you want to talk about the, the meaning of the title, Fall, kind of the same as last week, we said, well, you could call this, this, and this a slip. You know, this week, you, so, you know, there are a few things you could you could call a fall. And you could, you could say Mike may have fallen into Gus's hands here. You know, he, he may be on the losing end of this deal because now he's got a paycheck coming to him every week uh, and he's got to wait for that to all play out. Meanwhile, Gus is going to, I guess, be saying, okay, do me this favor and now do me this favor. And, you know, how many favors do you do a guy before you say, hey, we're we're even? Yeah, I, I think that the the notion that he's on the payroll for 20 weeks would for Mike seem like, well, that's a long time for this guy to kind of have it over me. He must be considering that, oh, I'm going to be in hock to this guy. This guy's going to be asking me for favors. And I think Mike, he just knows the deal. Right. And even if it doesn't add up to, you know, 20 weeks worth of working for a guy, you could say, you know, in Mike's mind, he could say, well, I, I might owe this guy $20,000 worth of favors. But how many favors is that? Also, I was uh, a little bit interested in just how that scene ended with uh, Lydia saying, 
you know, because Mike refers to Gus as a drug dealer or something. Uh, but he says, uh, if that's all you think he is, you don't know Gustavo Fring. Yeah. What was the point of that? Was that just to show us that Lydia admires him or thinks that he, you know, is a great citizen or something? Or is she into him? What is that about? You know, kind of that. I, I mean, it was. I think it was intended to say Lydia has an admiration for Gus and thinks he's quite impressive, but also that Mike is a little bit reductive to call him a drug dealer. I think Mike used those words very pointedly to to shake her out of this spiel that she was doing. Though. Right. It didn't feel like Mike was unaware of the fact that Gustavo Fring is a complicated guy when he said that. But I think he said that to kind of, again, like a cop, he's trying to see what she says or does when he hits her with this word or this phrase, drug dealer, just to see how she reacts. And yeah. he now knows that she's in a little bit of denial or maybe she's a little bit of this cult of Gus, which Mike is probably just watching very carefully now that he technically works for the guy, you know, yep. um, uh, or or owes him at any rate. So I, I think right. it was kind of mysterious exactly what she meant. But to say that there's more to him than just being a drug dealer, I think we can imagine what she means based on just what we know of Gus, you know, and it is nice to to just make it sound a little more complicated and to make her seem a little more complicated. If, even if none of that ever amounted to anything, it makes her more real than a person who's just like, "Yes, I work at this corporation where we would launder money for a drug dealer, and we're done. Here we go." Right, and of course, in that capacity, her um, her uh, sort of persnicketiness and her her kind of snobbiness definitely came through. You know, the way that she sort of scoffed at Mike's current job by saying this is going to look better on your resume than uh, SMQ parking. And then she also, at some point when she feels like he's kind of putting the screws to her, she sort of tries to hit him back. And she says, um, I'll do respect, Mike, but your money, it's a rounding error, you know, meaning yeah. don't worry so much about us cooking the books to cover your ass. We've got you covered. You're not our biggest problem. But then she also says, this is the first time I've done this for somebody. And it kind of underlines as she says that I don't know what you do, but Mr. Fring must think you're quite good at it. So it's important to yeah. see that she's alluding to the fact that there's more to Gus than meets the eye, and there must be more to Mike, too, than meets the eye if Gus is taking a shine to you or is willing to help you in this way. Right. You know? But, yes, of all the increments, this was the most incrementy increment. Um, it was incrementy fresh. <laughs> if you don't have anything else to say about Mike, I guess we can move on to to uh, a plot line that I'm actually kind of anxious to see what you thought of it. So. Okay. Um, I just have one major question about Hector this week, which is, what the fuck? What happened? <laughs> like, it, did, did Nacho's plan go up in smoke, or is this like a long-term thing? Was there a placebo effect? I didn't know that worked with that sort of heart medication, but what did you make of that? And as far as an increment, did you feel anything but frustration uh, from that plotline? I did feel uh, quite frustrated, of course, when, when Hector didn't feel any effects. It was like, what the heck? And then I just had to say, well, um, yes, he had a little placebo effect of, I guess I feel better because I'm still alive here. And it just probably was, you know, an attack that wasn't quite going to amount to his death. That was just one of their realistic turns where it makes you say, okay, now we got to deal with the realism of the fact that uh, everything doesn't happen right when you feel like it would happen. You know, besides just delaying your gratification, it it lets them uh, put uh, Nacho's dad in more and more danger. So they can they can bring Nacho's dad right up to the 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 brink of you know almost being killed before uh, something happens to Hector and uh, 
now we've we've got that to worry about, and, and we've got to worry about whether whether Nacho's dad is going to uh, lash out and get himself killed before Hector can get killed. Thinking that it might be Hector's last moment, I did believe that if they were going to have him have his incident and be confined to a wheelchair and unable to speak after that, if they were going to say what's the last thing that Hector ever says. Um, I believe that uh, the exact quote is, fuck Don Eladio, fuck Balsa, and fuck you. Right. And yet that was not, you know, he walked away, so that's not it. The big takeaway from that is that Nacho's hard work seems to have come to naught as of yet. He does have to now tell his dad in a scene that I thought was pretty heartbreaking. But there's a possibility that what we're going to see is Nacho's life get thoroughly screwed up and then his plan work. Just seeing Nacho's face and seeing that he's willing to accept that he's lost his father's love in a way, but he just wants his dad to stay alive, you know? Yeah. And also he just knows his dad well enough to know, uh, I have to warn this guy because even though tough drug dealing gangsters are going to come in, he will think, well, I can stand up to him and I'll beat this guy up. You know, he's, he's got to tell him, dad, don't do anything. Like don't, don't have integrity in this instance. Don't stand up for yourself. It's not going to work. Well, if, if Hector had a fall, not the literal fall that I was, I was kind of counting on, uh, a character who we suppose last time may be slipping, but, but maybe not was Kim. And I think we can definitely see that her decision last week to take on Gatwood Oil as another client was a foolhardy one if she was not going to bring on a paralegal or something in order to take on some of the general load of processing all that information and getting it ready. Mm-hmm. I think we saw a Kim this week who was definitely frazzled and and not at her best. And it was interesting to see how that progressed and where we ended up with that. It's like, oh, here it is. Here's a, a, a screw up of hers. That is not the same kind of screw up we see these other characters having, but it is a screw up nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and with all the visual storytelling on this show, I just wonder if that rock that she crashed into that prevented her from crashing into a much worse ditch, uh, if that is sort of a visual metaphor for like, this is the writing on the wall. This is the sign for Kim that this could have been so much worse. Take a, take, take a look at your life. Stop and look around at what's going on. You know, you were running yourself ragged. Look at the reasons why. Um, I mean, what do you think of that? Do you think that going forward, uh, this is going to have really shaken her faith in herself or what she's doing? Or is it is it going to be something that in her mind goes all the way back to Jimmy and sort of the fact that he seems to destroy things? Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. You don't know whether uh, whether she's even going to blame herself or blame the amount of work that she had, which uh, you definitely could blame. And I guess that is an important part of the text, but I wasn't really even thinking about that. I was just thinking, well, this is what you do. And now there's a big uh, wreck almost out of the blue. And, uh, you know, the main implication for me is like, well, what does that mean going forward for her business and Jimmy's business and how they're going to handle, you know, the aftermath of this if she can't uh, work for a certain amount of time or something that 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 I think was you know the main issue to me. But also I had this question before we get too into looking forward. Uh, I just was curious about the early scene where she uh, her car gets stuck and she puts some boards under there and then almost loses control of it, nearly runs into an oil derrick, and then that doesn't happen and she drives away. What was that about? Was that to somehow set us up with? thinking that she's too distracted to, to 
to drive so that later it's not such a surprise, or was that to tell us that she can get a car unstuck, and so she's a generally competent person with car? What was what was the point of of having that whole scene? I think that scene was there to do a little bit of playing with the audience and creating the sense that something bad could happen to Kim. Right, also just to make a boring scene interesting, maybe, because without that part, it would have been like, all right, she met with the guy, and they shook hands, okay. But I don't think that would have been outside the show's purview, just to have a normal, nice scene. I mean, they didn't need that if they weren't trying to put us in Kim's mindset a little bit more. And so it's like, it's a situation that wasn't really her fault, that just got out of control, and she she handled it. You know, I mean, I think that's the main thing there. I flash back to when she said... I think this was last season when Jimmy uh, has sort of gotten her in hot water because she's been associating with him and she's down in the, in doc review at HHM. Um, and, uh, and she says, you don't save me. I save me. Yeah. That's like her motto. Yeah. And I think that this week we saw an elucidation of that. It just made us feel uneasy so that when we next see her and she's like, her hand's shaking and she's got her coffee cup and she's ordering Francesca around. It's like, we can tell that she's a different version of Kim than we've seen before. Someone who's a little bit more likely to make a mistake. And if you've ever driven really sleepy and had that moment of like, like snapping out of it, they did a great job of evoking the way that, that if you start to swerve off the road or if something happens, you know, uh, it really is like you blink out and blink back in. And I mean, obviously, uh, she had a pretty bad example of that, but sometimes you just swerve. But either way, you recognize I should not be on the road sleepy. There's just no reason to risk it. it just cut to airbag filling the screen. It was very abrupt, but that was that was well done. It was reminiscent of the scene earlier in the season when she's waiting outside Mesa Verde's uh, 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 office, and she catches a quick like power nap in the car. They they had her set the alarm and set it up on the dashboard, and it set it for five minutes. And then she she lays her head back, and then it jump cuts to it going yeah. beep, 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 and her right. sitting up. It, like the, the camera changed ever so slightly so that you had that jump effect. So I feel like this was almost like a, a very clever – I mean, you could also say that was a very clever setup for this. But just yeah. she's in the car, she's taking a nap, there's a jump cut. It's I mean, again, who knows how much they plan out and how much they just go back and pick up the right breadcrumbs that they have left for themselves. But either way, it makes it feel very cohesive that something was going to happen to Kim in a car and it was yeah. going to involve falling asleep is is something that maybe they were trying to tell us before. You know, Right. Well, that's another spot to, you could uh, uh, connect the title fall to and say that she fell asleep while driving. I was going to say that she uh, possibly falls out of the workforce because, uh, you know, if she, if she can't uh, keep, you know, if she can't get right back to work in the next uh, few minutes, then... Uh, she's kind of in in a pickle. So let's move on to the brothers McGill and uh, and the man who's caught between them in many ways, Howard Hamlin. Um, it's interesting to me that Chuck can come back so quickly from us sort of warming up to him and, and kind of rooting for him last week and just remind us that his ego really is all that matters to him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on some level. Yeah. How did you take Chuck's behavior this week and were you surprised at all? It, yeah, it was sudden, you know, it, it just, it had not occurred to me at all that you would have this big of a dust up with, the, I thought it would be an annoying complication to have your insurance go up, but for them to immediately turn it uh, so adeptly to uh, a situation where Chuck is going to sue HHM, um, 
that was cool and clever. But it, it's, it makes it such a huge development that now if, if there's any way that they can ever uh, come back around and get a clue that, that, uh, that Jimmy uh, messed around and, and, uh, and his actions resulted in this, then, uh, oi, he's really going to be uh, in trouble with them. But I don't know if they can pull it off. But everything has consequences in this show, basically. So it seems like somehow, someday, they, they could do that. It's enough to say that this has driven a wedge between Howard and Chuck and that it being Jimmy's fault and we know it. Yeah. Okay. Again, the destructive power of Jimmy McGill when he's just striking out and lashing out and kind of nursing his his hurt feelings. Right. That should be enough. I will say that for Howard, I thought this was a really strong episode. I think that we're never really expected to like Howard, Mm -hmm. but he's been watching and He's been a witness to all of this stuff that we've seen, and he's had opinions. And I feel like this was the week where Howard's being fed up with the McGill brothers just reached its full flower. Even if it was very self-congratulatory of him the way he did it, what he said to Jimmy was very accurate when he says that it's like talking to Gollum. Right. He says, you're pathetic. He says, next time bring a tin cup. Right. It would be more honest. That that was a really good one. And Yeah, I was impressed with Howard's... Uh things he got in this this week it was a great week for him because he got in the yeah bring a tin cup next time it'll, it'll it's more honest and uh also if enough people uh tell you you're drunk you sit down that was huge he also said this is not what fine looks like yeah so it's like it's truth telling we know he's kind of a a jerk but but i, I feel like he earned his moment yeah We've seen Howard kind of have his worst suspicions about Jimmy confirmed. But now he can list in his head the things that Jimmy has done like he did to Jimmy's face this time and just see, yeah, that Jimmy is not to be trusted. Well, when he said, what are you going to do? And he named a couple things that Jimmy could do. Like It's like, but I don't think so because you're more worried about getting your money, you know. So it really was, again, a, a total jerk move. Um and the, the offering the money to him, that's just such a rich asshole thing. <laughs> yeah, <to do>. yeah. <laughs> that was great. And I love this uh, little moment from Howard, too, where uh, he the uh, the opening of the letter from Chuck, he totally jinxed it by, before he opens the letter, he says, great, it's a retirement letter, let's have a party, order the caterers, you know, bring in the clowns or whatever you do, and then opens the letter. And then his smile fades. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, I think if you just had opened the letter first, it would have said, I'm retiring. He totally jinxed it. It's Schrodinger's letter, you know? Right. It's like, until you open it, it exists in both states, if I'm to understand the whole yes. concept of that. Something like that. Something like that. But also, the scene with Chuck, yes, as we've already mentioned some of his lines, Howard got off some good ones on Chuck. Um, but again, it's in the realm of kind of truth-telling and kind of calling him on his own shit. But again, Howard has that too with, with or I should say Chuck has that too with Howard in that he's able to say, I helped your dad build the firm. Um, I tutored you. I mean, it's not right. like Chuck's never done anything for Howard, but we've seen Howard carrying water for Chuck this whole time. And so it felt to me like it had to blow. And I felt like this season in particular, they were playing that more with just little cutaways to Howard or just his expression when he was dealing with Chuck would sometimes betray a sense of disgust almost that he has to put up with this. Right. Or just, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. Right. So that in the sense of like Howard on the show, this was an extremely uh, explosive episode. <laughs> yeah. I guess the one question I'll leave you with before we move on to Jimmy is, are you rooting for anyone in the battle between Chuck and HH&M? Who? Um, no, not rooting. Because, yeah, it's, that's very hard and sad. I don't, uh, I don't want Chuck to 
sue them and destroy this firm, you know? Uh, but I don't want... Yeah, I mean, I guess... I guess I agree that Chuck should retire, but I don't want it to be because he got uh, ruined in in a court case that he brought. You know, that's just too much. And I do think he's, you know, that's kind of the thing we're seeing with him. They, they remind us a couple of times that he still does have his light allergy and he is fooling himself. He's overextending himself to, to, to think, I'm fine. I can, I can sue someone and go into a courtroom. You know, um, I think he, he really is setting himself up to get into something where he very much needs to have a great day with no light allergy effects and then has a terrible light allergy episode. He was clearly putting on a show for Howard. You know, Chuck is hustling just like Jimmy is hustling. So the second Howard leaves and we see that Chuck actually was quite bothered by the uh, electric mixer or whatever he had in his hand. Right. I can see Howard's resentment at showing up and the lights are on. There's a little bit of like, really? You've got the lights on now because you heard that that this might be psychosomatic finally? It's like part of me wants to shake both Chuck and Jimmy just for a really long time, you know? Yeah. Um but I'd probably get sued, so... Yeah, don't do that. You know, we knew that uh, Chuck realizing that his problem might be in his head was huge, but I didn't think so much about Howard internalizing that fact, becoming another plot point, but mm-hmm. it seems like this was a well-earned moment because, you again, you see both sides. There's no... There's really no villain. It, technically, that's two villains in a room having a fight, you know, Chuck and, mm-hmm. and Howard. But you kind of are rooting for both of them. You don't yeah. want to see either one of them destroyed. That's pretty good storytelling. Yeah, they're both right. But talking about Chuck, that's one more place that you could apply the uh, fall title because this is the episode where Chuck had a falling out with HHM. Which leaves us with um, the last character that uh, we can definitely say <laughs> fell from grace in a way this week. Uh you could also say uh, he drowned a kitten or he uh, he saw a little birdie and he threw an acorn at its head really hard. Or you could say or you could say Jimmy tricked a sweet old lady <laughs> and manipulated her and her friends uh, uh, in a horrifying fashion, I thought. Well, yes, tricked and manipulated, but I wouldn't go as far as horrifying. I think this was a, a, some less destructive meddling than a lot of his meddling. Uh, he was just uh, messing around because uh, the thing that I think uh, is very clever and kind of saves him is that he uh, he never technically advised her to settle. You know, when she finally, when Irene finally, finally came to him and said, uh, what should I do? He got that great, like, hmm, I'm thinking about something I've never thought about before look on his face <laughs> and then said, uh, uh, listen to your heart. You know, Jimmy's not as good of an actor as Bob Odenkirk. Right, right. And so those moments are usually very funny because it's it's a little too late on thick or not thick enough or something. And so you see the limits of Jimmy's talent because we know when when Jimmy's not putting on a show and he's actually considering something, he doesn't look like that. But right. For Irene, right. the the finger goes to the chin and the the, <laughs> the you know eyes thoughtful. Well, I mean, okay, let me put it this way. It's funny that you're looking at it in terms of the destructiveness of it, because I I think there's a lot to unpack here, and we'll try to hit all the points. But um, my general thought was the destructiveness of it was, was, you're right, not on the level of what we know Saul Goodman is involved in later, you know, in terms of the grander destruction of supporting a drug empire. Yeah. 
or multiple drug empires was not as as destructive. So in that sense, not as not as horrifying of a crime as what Saul Goodman will later be into. But if you had asked me at the end of Breaking Bad, would Saul Goodman take a little old lady who was his friend and thinks the world of him and twist her world so that she breaks down in tears and then is malleable for him to get what he wants out of her? Yeah. I would say, I don't think Saul Goodman would do that. So uh-huh. I thought Jimmy sank lower than Saul Goodman in this oh, episode by, yeah. by trading on the very things that we were charmed about. Like they basically took all the charm built up on that elder care plot line yeah. and then just took a big old shit on it and said, now we've seen him use all those ploys, all those tools, all that, again, charm. You know, it's, it's beautiful watching Bob Odenkirk in these scenes. And these, I will say, particularly the actress that played Irene was just a dream. She was fantastic. She hit the perfect note of of being just sort of, uh, she just loves him and just trusts him and mm-hmm. thinks that he's great. The fact that he used that for his own gain, even if she never figures it out, even if she continues to think, well, everyone made out with some money and I'm, my friends eventually you know, warmed up to me again and everything's fine. Even if it turns out okay, we know he did that to someone who who is his friend. And he was like preying on her as a little old lady, which even though we've pictured him dealing with criminals, I've always thought he's helping people that no one wants to help. Not so much. He's also screwing people who can't help themselves. I don't know. In the end, he didn't screw her. She got some money. So it it is, you're right, less destructive, but on the moral scale, on the emotional scale, as someone who's been tracking, like how much do we love Jimmy? Yeah. At the end of this episode, I wanted to uh, hit him on the knuckle with a a ruler. Okay. I can see that, but I, it didn't affect me as hard. Um, I think uh, in that way, uh, which, you know, it does hit me deeply in the stomach when I when he reaches, you know, moments that I find as new lows. But um, but this week, for some reason, I think also it didn't seem like he's betraying a friend because they're not real friends. He's she's his fake friend. You know, when he goes around and says, how's your grandson or whatever? That's all just part of of his act. But you're right that it is low to take someone down to the point of tears like that. And it being a little old lady <laughs> is very harsh, but it was so expertly executed. And it was hilarious. Right, that you just almost have to just uh, enjoy it. It's hilarious until you cut to that little old lady, and I, I swear they were framing her so that she looked small in the frame when she would come into a room. She just seemed like a sweet little person, and yep. and they were doing a great job, especially with the tennis shoes. Like, you know, he puts these... These uh, dorky, uh, you know, uh, orthopedic-looking shoes on her, and she's so proud of herself. And it's like then he turns that into something. It's like, and he's I got agree. every size of shoe in the trunk. It's so perfectly <sighs> planned and executed. And the fact that he's like hanging out around the uh, retirement community, like playing pool with the gals and doing chair yoga while he's like seeding their minds with all this stuff that he wants them to think of. It's like he's willing to put in the work. Yep. I wonder if it will come back to haunt him in some way. Right. If they can find out if if uh, HHM can get a clue that he meddled in this, uh, that could somehow have tremendous blowback. And then also, I wonder if the, uh, did, because he comes in trying to celebrate with Kim, uh, like, like he heard the news or something, but I don't know if he heard the news or if he's just saying, I know what's going to happen, so let's celebrate. So I believe that it's possible he knows that she accepted the terms, but I also think that we know from the other side of things that whereas a day or two ago, Howard was content to wait for a bigger payday, now he's looking at the very real possibility that they may have to pay Chuck. So he may be trying to liquidate whatever he can uh, on behalf of the firm. So it's possible that suddenly the pressure to 
hold out evaporated on the HH&M side, and we just didn't see that play out. We got to think that Jimmy does not get $1.2 million anytime soon. Or he doesn't keep it. Right, that's true. He could get it and somehow immediately lose it. However, we do know that Saul Goodman always had like safes full of money and stuff around. So whether that was just money that was coming through or if he was in hock to something, we don't know. But I mean, it's possible that he is... I mean, that could be a storytelling way they get Jimmy through a year of of not being a lawyer, is that he's loaded. Yeah. But I think if he was super loaded, he would say, great, I'm retired, I'm moving to Bora Bora, uh, until Kim said, no, I want to be a lawyer. And he would possibly say, okay, I'll help you be a lawyer, but I'm, I'm ready to move to Bora Bora as soon as I can convince you. This episode left us with the feeling that he won and it's just kind of a dirty victory. And he's looking, I felt like, looking for someone to celebrate with because he kind of wants to quiet that voice in his head that we know is there because we know that he didn't actually take pleasure in the part where he hurt Irene. Yeah. I think he was trying to celebrate to sort of like convince himself that this is a good thing and that this is great, you know. Yeah. I still feel like he could have talked to Irene and convinced her, but I think that what we're talking about is he had to come up with a scheme where by no stretch could he be said to have given them legal advice. That he didn't even want to be seen as like a consultant. Because if you think about it, he didn't, he explained, I mean, I guess theoretically he gave legal advice to the other ladies by explaining the case and everything. But that could be chalked up to just, I have this experience and it's chit chat and these are my friends, you know. Right, right. So I think that, I think his scheme was built around. Uh, just that notion of plausible deniability that he did not meddle in, in, you know, and he did not break the terms that say he can't practice law right. of his suspension. That's true because he could have very well at the beginning of the episode said, no, you really need to uh, go ahead and, and take this. And, and uh, that's my strong advice. But he, he didn't, he didn't do that. And he even ended up, like I said, coming down to just listen to your heart. Yeah. But he knew by that point that her heart would very strongly say, um, uh, take this settlement. No, very expertly done uh, as far as schemes go. I just don't like to look at little Irene Landry and think she's a mark and a stooge. Uh, I like to think that Jimmy actually does have some affection for them. If you do think that this is um, you know, one of the worst things he's ever done, then the title fall applies to him too because he has fallen uh, further down the uh, – rabbit hole of amorality uh, than ever before. Again, in a way that is different from and seemingly to me more uh, more repellent than than just saying I'm going to launder money for a drug dealer. This is like I'm going to exploit a friendship, you know, yeah. which is which is meaner. Um, even if, as you said, in terms of actual human death and destruction, a pretty a pretty uh, victimless scheme. Yeah. So do you think uh, the gals ever let Irene back into the circle? Do you think these little cliques form and change around the uh, retirement community and that she shouldn't worry? Uh, or do you think this is it'll never be the same? And one more thing Jimmy destroyed was the remaining years of Irene Landry's sweet life. <laughs> no, no, I think I think she's fixed up. I think as as soon as as she manages to spread it around that she uh, went for the deal and they're all going to get a little more money a little sooner. Um. She'll be right back in the fold another two days later. Well, I hope you're right. Um, do you have anything else on this episode? I think we covered everything I wanted to say. Oh, but um, I saw the uh, bonus content uh, little three-minute short film that they give you. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. You have to play their their trivia game 
which they put up another little bit of every week, and then eventually you unlock this uh, little short film. And? It was a pleasant little short, uh, no big whoop, but uh, you do get the fun of playing all the trivia game as well, and, you know, that's nice. So why not go to BCS Bingo and do that? And what I'll, I'll spoil it just a little so you have a clue of what you're getting into without telling you anything. Is uh, It's a little follow-up on some characters that you might say, uh, whatever happened to them, um, now you'll know. I might have to go through that. Or I can spoil it for you if you want me to just tell you what it is. All right, maybe off mic. Okay. I don't want to wreck a promotional effort by the network uh, right. that we're supporting. Right. <laughs> but yes, so, so folks, I'm going to get the inside poop from someone that actually went through it. But... It'll probably only take you five or ten minutes to answer all the questions. And if you get one wrong, you just answer again. And then, uh, you know, when you do that, then there's a three-minute short film. You know what that sounds like? A quick quiz and a hot talk. Quick quiz and a hot talk. <laughs> 